Good afternoon. I pray that everybody is doing well. Y'all look well. Uh, everybody looks happy and healthy and the sun is shining. Uh, but here's what I know. Even if it was raining, the Lord is still good and uh, he's still on the throne. Uh, listen, we, I want to cut out the small talk in the beginning and jump right to it. So if you can grab your Bibles or your devices uh, and meet me in Habakkuk 1 is where we're going to be. Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, as you guys turn there, I, I just want to quickly publicly express my um, desire to see you guys here next week as we celebrate our second year anniversary. That is a big deal for a church, a church plant to, uh, to be celebrating two years. This is amazing. It, it is nothing but the Lord. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 16. He says, I will build my church. And over the last several years, the Lord has been faithful, faithful, faithful to do that. And we're going to be celebrating next week. Uh, invite your friends, invite your family. Uh, Dr. Mason, my pastor and mentor, will be here preaching both services. Uh, and so if, whatever service you decide to come to, just make sure you get here early. That is, that is my one suggestion to you. Uh, you guys feel the tightness of the room. Uh, we're going to do our best to get everybody in. So make sure you're here early uh, if you come to the first service or the second service. All right, Habakkuk. Listen, we've been in Habakkuk for three weeks now. This is our third week, and God has been gracious to meet us each week that we've been in it. Uh, just by way of recap, because I know that there are some of you that have not uh, gone through the sermon series with us, at least this is your first time here, or maybe your second time here. Just by way of recap, uh, week number one in the book of Habakkuk, we started out by looking at Habakkuk's questions, concerns, and complaints to the Lord. And really, his, his complaints really surrounded around the fact that he thought that God was turning a blinded eye to the wickedness that was surrounding uh, Judah, God's people. He was like, God, like these are your people and you're letting them act trifling. And so he, he went through that in the first week. He opened the book up with questions and complaints. And then God abruptly just interrupts him last week. And last week we got to see uh, not Habakkuk talking, but we got to see God talking. And God assured the prophet that he was not turning a blinded eye to the sin that was surrounding Judah. Remember the words that surrounded Judah was iniquity and strife and contention and violence. And God showed up in, uh, last week and showed us that he's not turning a blinded eye to it. He sees their sin and he deals with it. One of the things we tried to point out last week that if that's you in this room and you're going through uh, a cycle of unrepented sin and nobody knows about it. And now we all get there, so don't act like, you know, everybody's spiritual in this room. Somebody in this room is going through a cycle of sin. Nobody knows about it. Person to your left doesn't know person to your right doesn't know, your closest friends don't know. And I'll go so far as to say some of you that are married, your spouse doesn't even know about the sin that is going on in your life. And, you know, we think this, we seem to think that we are hiding it from the Lord. In reality, all of it is laid bare before the Lord. And last week we got to see that because God was like, I know you're trying to tell me about Judah's sins, but Habakkuk, you do know I am God. And I do see all the sins of my people. The only problem was he decided that he was going to deal with it in an unconventional way. He said, I'm going to use the Babylonians, a more wicked nation than Judah, to deal with Judah's sins. Well, this week is a little different. Well, it's slightly the same as first week. Habakkuk now, this week, has a second set of complaints. He has a second set of questions. Now, I don't know how you feel, but I thought this was a little bold. In fact, I thought the first week was a little bold that Habakkuk was going to open up the book by telling us questions and complaints he has for the Lord. You mean to tell me that he's going to do it a second time? 
Like the first time, I'm like, oh, God, you should have just struck him dead right there. You are God. Why is he questioning you? But he talks out the side of his face a second time in a row. The next time he talks back to God, he has a bunch of questions and a bunch of complaints. And this really affirms one thing to us in this room. And that one thing is you can go to the Lord over and over and over again, and he does not get aggravated. He's not aggravated with Habakkuk in our passage this morning. And so some, some single mother in here that has been going to the Lord and praying about her situation and praying on how to raise her son or raise her young mother, here's what I know. You can go to the Lord over and over again about that situation. Maybe you're in here and your marriage is on the rocks and you don't know what else to do but turn to the Lord. If that is you, God isn't aggravated by your persistency in prayer. Maybe you're in here and there's some type of illness and you've been going to the Lord and it feels like heaven is silent. Here's what I know. God is not aggravated. How do I know? Because Habakkuk goes back to the Lord again with a second set of complaints and a second set of questions. Hebrews chapter 4 will say it this way. Come boldly before the throne of grace. That means that if you're in this room and you're like, man, I already went to the Lord. I don't want to aggravate him. Maybe you grew up in a, in a household where your parents were aggravated every time you went to them. And for some reason, that is filtered into your relationship with the Lord. God is not aggravated with your persistency. I'm trying to save you from tiptoeing to the throne of grace like God is going to meet you there. Every time you go to the throne of grace, God is there. How do I know that? Because he's not aggravated with Habakkuk. He does not stop Habakkuk and be like, listen, you already had questions and complaints. Don't come here with all of that. No, no, no. He listens to Habakkuk's second set of complaints uh, and his questions. Let's jump right in. Verse number 12. We'll do 12 to 17. It says this. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one, we shall not die. He says it again. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Verse 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you look idly at traitors? Talking about the Babylonians. As they remain silent when the wicked are swallowed up, when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and, is, and his food is rich. Verse 17, last verse. He, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever. I simply want to preach today from the topic entitled an unconvincing lawyer, an unconvincing lawyer. Let us pray. Father, we need you. And I really don't, I could just say amen there. I don't need to even pray anymore besides that, because I think that one phrase lets you know that we are desperately depending on you this afternoon. Father, the people that are sitting in these seats cannot hear from you unless your Holy Spirit moves. Remove the spiritual earwax from our ears. Father, I cannot preach or proclaim your word without your Holy Spirit moving in this place. So, Father, we need you. May you help us today to see Jesus out of this passage. May Jesus be central and may he be present. Many of us in this room do have questions and still have 
complaints even if you've answered them. You've answered Habakkuk, and he still has questions, and he wrestles with your responses. Sometimes, Lord, I wrestle. We think that you're not committed to us because of the response you've given us. Help us today. Would you work us over through your word? It is in Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen. Amen. An unconvincing lawyer. I probably shouldn't start the sermon this way, uh, but nevertheless, I am convinced that it is important to be truthful. So I want to be truthful and I want to lay my cards on the table today. Fellas, don't judge me. Uh, I have a non-physical crush on Judge Judy. I just do. I don't know what it is about her. In fact, I do know what it is. It is not her $47 million that she made last year. It wasn't that, maybe a little bit, but moreover, it wasn't that. It's not a physical crush. I have a crush on her. I like her because of how vocal and honest she is. In fact, she'll tear you down with one sentence. She'll flip your world upside down with one sentence. Anybody ever watch Judge Judy in here? Let me tell you, I'm obsessed with watching Judge Judy. There there was one episode that I watched where uh, she uh, was in interactions with one young lady that was there. It was an attractive, beautiful young lady, and she said something that lacked intelligence. And when she said it, she looked over at her bailiff bird. Y'all know the, the bird, the, the, the security guard. She looked over at him, and she said, beauty fades, but dumb is forever. <laughs> I'm like, this is why I like her. It, there was another episode that I saw where uh, a young man decided that it was a, a good idea to interrupt her by cursing. She looks at him and she says, young man, that's going to be the most expensive curse word you've ever said. Judgment for the plaintiff. She bangs the gavel. There was another episode I watched. Last one. I, you can catch up later on. Last one. There, there, was a, there was an episode where a guy thought that he was smarter than her. And so he was giving her the law. And she says, young man, shut up. She, she says, I eat morons like you for breakfast. I love Judge Judy. I, I just do. I just do. And I, I don't know. My wife knows about it. So, you know, y- y'all, y'all don't try to bum rush her later. She knows about it. Listen, I don't know if you like Judge Judy in here as well, but even if you don't, all of us like those strong one-liners from courtroom scenes. Y'all remember that movie in 19, uh, I think it came out in 1992 with Jack Nicholson with uh, a few good men when he's sitting on the stand and he leans forward. Everybody knows the line that he says, you can't handle the truth. All of us know that line. Or how about the O.J. Simpson trial? I see that stuff just started surfacing back up with that. But remember the O.J. Simpson trial when one of the prosecutors, uh, uh, Chris Darden, decided it was a good idea to have O.J. try on the gloves. And for five minutes he was, you know, acting it out like he couldn't get it on. I don't know if he could or not, but he was acting... (laughs) Like he couldn't get the glove on. And, and re- remember, the, the, I mean, the most famous line from that, uh, from that scene was, was at the end when Johnny Cochran had the closing argument. And y'all remember it. If y'all know it, won't y'all say it with me? If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. All of us love a convincing lawyer. But here's my question to you. What about an unconvincing lawyer? What about a lawyer that has made his case? But to no avail. He's made his case and all of us are sitting there like, that didn't make sense. Well, here's what I know. Habakkuk this morning in our text, he does not act as though he's a prophet in verses 12 to 17. He acts more like a lawyer. But the problem with his case is he has God's character on trial. How many know that that never goes well for you? 
Well, that's what Habakkuk is doing. He's trying to convince God because God has already came back to him and said, here's how I'm going to deal with the sins of Judah. I'm going to send the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're a more wicked nation, but I'm going to send them. And now Habakkuk has God's character on trial saying, this is why you should not do that. And he lays out verses 12 to 17 for us. He gives them three convincing well, they're not really convincing, but three semi-convincing arguments. On the surface, they look like they all are legit, but all of them fall flat. Here's the three arguments that he's going to give. The first one is that God can't judge his people because of the covenant he has made with them. That's the first argument we get in verse number 12. The second argument we're going to get, and we're going to work through all three of these. The second argument is based upon God's righteous character. That's verse 13. In the rest of our passage this morning, the third argument that he's going to make is he tries to minimize the sins, his sins or their sins, by pointing to the greater sins of others. That's the entire passage. That's the entire courtroom scene where he lays it out before the Lord. Let us look together at verse number 12 and consider the very first argument. God can't judge his people because of the covenant or the promise that he's made to them. As we're reading verse number 12, it's important for you to pick up the intimate nature of Habakkuk's language. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? Here's the intimacy. Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one, we shall not die. And then he says it again. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. And you, oh, rock, have established them for reproof. There's something I want you to pick up here. Oh, it says in verse number 12, are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one, we shall not die. And then he says it again. Oh, Lord. Now, the English language does not do this justice, because when we look at it in the English language, it just simply says, oh, Lord. We do not know what name that the prophet is pulling on. Now, I don't know if you know this, if you have any uh, type of familiarity within the Old Testament, but there was multiple names for God that was given to the Hebrews. One of them, and we learned this in our Bible study last month, one of the names given to God, it shows up in uh, the Old Testament English language as O Lord, but it's Adonai. Stay with me. Adonai simply means master or Lord. And here's what I know. Habakkuk does not appeal to Adonai. He's not using Adonai in our text. Now, in the same English language, it's going to say O Lord again, but a different name that is given to the Hebrews is Yahweh. The name that Habakkuk is using in our text both times is Yahweh. Why is this important? Because that is a covenant name that is given specifically to the Hebrews. In other words, while Habakkuk is saying, oh Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, notice he's saying, my God, my Holy One, he's pushing on God the promise that he made through his covenant with Abraham. What do I mean by that? I don't know if you guys remember the covenant that he's made with Abraham. One of the covenants that he made was that he was going to make his, them a great nation and that they would outnumber the stars. I don't know if you remember Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. He took him outside and said, look up at the stars. And he looks up and he says, your descendants will outnumber that. Here's the question you should be asking. If God annihilates Judah and wipes them all out, how in the world is he faithful to upholding his promise to make them a great nation? And so Habakkuk is aware of that. And so he's like, Yahweh, remember the covenant. Yahweh, remember the promise that you made to Israel. Even though Habakkuk is trying to call on the covenant, 
he's forgetting that God is still sovereign. In other words, we learned that last week. His sovereignty allows him to do whatever he wants. Now, this sounds like an airtight argument. If I'm the judge ruling over this case, I'm like, you did make a covenant, God. I'm going to be like Judge Judy. I ain't going to talk to God like Judge Judy talked to people, though. But, but if, you, if you notice, what he's doing is he's pulling on the covenant. He's pulling on the promise. But here's what I know. When I read the Old Testament, God always punished his people. And in punishing his people, he always remained faithful to his covenant, his promise. How did he do that? Because there was always a remnant that was saved. He never completely wiped them all out. There was always a few that he said, I will save. If there are a hundred people in Israel and Judah and he kills a hundred, how can he maintain his promise? But if there's a hundred, he kills 98 and leaves two to replenish. He's still faithful and he's judging them. And so what Habakkuk is doing, he's trying to rely on this covenant, this promise. But God is like, ah, I, I got I can keep a remnant. Let me put a little Bible there. Micah chapter two, verse 12 says this. I will surely assemble all of you. Oh, Jacob, here it is. I will gather the remnant of Israel. There was a small crop of people that he would continue to save even in punishment. Here's another one. Zephaniah verse uh, chapter two, verse number seven. Those who are left from the remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take possession of it. In other words, God is able to punish his people, not completely annihilate them, which Habakkuk thought God was going to do. He's able to do that and uphold his promise. Now, I know that doesn't mean much to you, but let me tell you why it should birth some type of praise in this room. Because when God has made you a promise, it doesn't matter how far you went. It doesn't matter what sin you committed. If God made you a promise, here's what he says in Hebrews. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And here's the reality. This is a good word for somebody in here. You know why? Because if God was to give you what you deserved the moment you sinned, you would have died a long time ago. Back in the day, they used to say you, you would be in hell with gasoline drawers on. You would have been there. And, but, but God remembered instead of killing you, he remembered his promise that he made that he'll never leave you if you've trusted in Jesus. He remembered his promise, and instead of killing you, he banked on his covenant and said, I can't do it. And you are sitting in this room this morning. For some of you, let's just be real. It is God's grace. It is a testament that you didn't die last night. But you're sitting in this room in your right mind. You dressed yourself. You brushed your own teeth. And you're sitting here this morning why? Because of God's promise, because of God's covenant. And he is, Habakkuk is trying to pull on this relationship. He's like, God, don't kill them all. But God is like, listen, if I made a promise to Israel, I'm able to preserve Israel. And if he's made a promise to you, he is absolutely able to preserve you. Why? Hebrews 4, he'll never leave you. He will never forsake you. Oh, there's another verse that says none can pluck them out of my hand. God is faithful. God is faithful. If you hear nothing else, God is faithful. There's somebody in here that's ready to give up. There's somebody in here that's like, listen, I am far from the Lord. Listen, feeling far from the Lord is really you being near to him. Because if you, if you felt nothing, then you're really far. The fact that you feel convicted is grace. He's, he's going to uphold his promise. And so here, here's what I know. You can trust God because of his reputation of upholding his promise. When I used to work at Verizon Wireless, uh, I had a team under me. It was a team of 10 people, worked in the contracts department, finance department with the contracts. We did contracts in the finance department. And 
quarterly, my supervisor would make sure that we did some type of team builder because Verizon Wireless thinks that, you know, as long as you do team builders, you build morale within your team, they'll produce more, they'll be more productive. So four times a year, we had to do some type of team builder. So there was one team builder where I got there and the guy that was facilitating, he pulls out a chair in the middle of the room and he says, stand on the chair, I'm the supervisor, stand on the chair. So I stand on the chair. He tells my team to get behind me, so they all get behind me. And then he does something called the trust game. I'm like, what is the trust game? He says, I'm gonna show you. Turn around, so I had to turn around, my team was standing behind me. My team all had to make a commitment and a promise to me that if I fell backwards blindly, they would all be there to catch me. So there was five on one side and five on the other side, and I turned around, and I looked at my team, and I thought about the moments I wrote them up and took them to HR. There's moments I had to reprimand them for being late, and some of them just didn't have a good reputation at all anyway. And I'm looking back at my team, and something said to me, do not fall backwards blindly. That just wouldn't be wise. And why didn't I fall backwards? Because of their reputation. Here's what I know about our God. When he makes a promise, you can stand on the chair, fall backwards, because he will uphold his covenant. He will. And here's the thing about his covenant. His covenant is not based on your strength. You break it every time. His covenant is based on his strength. The fact that he is strong, not because you're strong. He didn't say that you, can, you can't pluck yourself. He says none can pluck them out of my hand. In other words, his strength is what upholds his promise. So Habakkuk is like, listen, Lord, remember your covenant. Remember your promise. God is like, I remember it. I'm going to punish y'all, and I'm still going to uphold it. How am I going to do that? Because there's always a remnant. If you look at the consistency within the Old Testament, every time he punished his people, there was always a remnant that was saved. I mean, look all the way back. Look all the way back to Noah. He could have wiped everybody out, made a new Adam, made a new Eve, and started all over. But he kept eight. He always upholds his promise and his covenant. First argument that the lawyer Habakkuk makes is God can't judge his people because of the covenant. Nah, he can, and he still can uphold it. Second argument that he makes is found in verse 13. And the second argument is based against God's righteous character. Look at verse 13. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors, talking about Babylon, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Let me lift up the A part of verse 13. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Here's the argument. I'm going to lay the argument out. This one sounds like an airtight one too, but it falls flat. The argument is, God, you are holy. You are righteous, and therefore you cannot look at evil. Therefore, you cannot use an evil nation to condemn and to punish your people because you're pure. It sounds legit. And you would think, like, I don't know if Habakkuk sat there and waited for God to be like, you know what, Habakkuk, you're right. I am holy. What am I doing? Why am I? No, no, God doesn't do that. Here's what I know. Even though he's holy, once again, he's still sovereign, meaning he can do whatever he wants. And here's the crazy part about Habakkuk's complaint here. Habakkuk saying you're a pure eyes. First of all, he's right. God is a pure eyes. Let me say it again. He's right. And I'll say it this way. He can't look at evil. But Habakkuk's complaint here is crazy because if this is true, if, if, he, if the argument that he's making would be applied to Judah, why is he in relationship with her? Remember, you said they had iniquities in the first time we got together, the first in the first two or 
three verses, you said that they were full of iniquity. And now that you're saying they're full of iniquity and I'm saying I'm going to use a wicked nation to judge them. You're like, wait, but you can't look at, at, at wickedness. In other words, if that is the case, why is he in relationship with Judah? Let me take it a step further. If that is the case, he shouldn't even be in relationship with Habakkuk. Don't forget Habakkuk is a sinner. There's only one person that has ever walked this earth that is a sinless person, and that is Jesus. Everybody else is a sinner. And so if this, if the A part of verse 13, you are of pure eyes, you cannot look at evil. If this is true, this is why this room should rejoice over Jesus. Because verse 13 hangs over your head. What do I mean? If God is of pure eyes and every week you come and I say you're a sinner, how can you stand before a God that can't look at your sin? How can you stand before a God that cannot look at evil? Here's how. Jesus. Because of Jesus' righteousness, when God looks at you, if you've trusted in Jesus, when he looks at you, he does not see the wrong that you've done. He does not see your iniquity. He does not see your sin. He sees it, the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. And so verse 13, we don't have to fear verse 13 because of Jesus. Habakkuk is right. You are of pure eyes. And, and, and it's crazy because like, there's no, the only qualification to be in relationship with God the Father is Jesus. That's your, one, that's your one requirement. Why? Because you do realize to be in relationship with God demands perfection. Is there anybody that's perfect in this room? I, I just want to see, is there anybody? I doubt it. There's nobody that's perfect in this room. Therefore, we must rely on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Getting my boys into junior high and high school, we had to do it last year. It's a difficult and cumbersome process. I mean, they, I mean, there's some teachers in here. There's principals in here. And so some of you probably know getting them into not charter schools, public schools is a I mean, the requirements are crazy. We try to get my, my youngest son going into junior high. You think we were trying to get him into Yale. We're trying to get him into junior high, and, and there, was a, there was a school that we were interested in that was connected to his current school, and the, the school was a music and a arts and a theater school. My son plays the bass, you know, but he's taking lessons now, and he was taking lessons last year. And so we were like, you know, in order to get him in, not only does he have to have good grades, but he has to have some skill. In fact, they go so far as they make, they make the kids audition. And so they wanted him to audition to get into this school, and so we were like, man, let's learn a song. And so he, he learned this song on the bass. We packed up the car. We drove to the school. And he got out and he performed. That's the requirement to get into the school. You must perform to get into the school. Not so with God. You do not have to pack the car, get to heaven's gates, and play a song for God. Like, you don't have to do that. You know what the requirement is? Faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. That's it. Like, we make it so hard. We make it so deep. And here's what I know. Some of you in here that have trusted in Jesus by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, you still try to earn it. Even though you know that it's all based on grace, you still try to make it based on your works, even if you are a believer in here. And so Habakkuk is like, you're pure. You have pure eyes. How can we stand in front of a God that cannot look at evil? Here's how Jesus Christ is how. Here's the first argument. God can't judge his people because of the covenant that he's made with them. Second argument is based upon God's righteous character. Those arguments both fall flat. God is sovereign and he can do whatever he wants to do. Here's the third and final argument that he makes. It's found in the B part of 13 and the rest of the chapter. 
Here's the, the last argument. He tries to minimize their sins by pointing to the greater sins of others. Please look back with me at verse 13, and we'll read this all the way to the end. Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like the crawling things that have no ruler. The rest of it now, he's just going to explain how the Babylonians are. He brings them all, he brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with the net. He, drag, he gathers them with his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Verse 17. Is he then, talking about the Babylonians, to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? The basis of his final appeal is, Lord, I know we're wicked, but look at my neighbor. They're more wicked than us. That's his, that's his final argument. And I, I will agree, there are certain sins that have greater effects and consequences. Let me give you an example of that. Murder and rape probably have a more, uh, a, a more of an effect and a long-lasting consequence than lying in pride. Lying in pride might just be offensive to somebody, but murder and rape could cause all types of issues. Now, even though that has long-lasting effects here on earth, in God's eyes, it's all sin, and sin all needs to be punished. God doesn't sit there and go, oh, that's a greater sin. I should let you in a special part of heaven, and you go in that part. Because, no, all of its sin is what we get to see in the text. And so what, what Habakkuk is doing is he's pointing at another nation. Forget the fact that Judah is in sin. He's pointing at another nation, and he's saying their sin is greater than ours. And here's what I know. You in this room do that too. You can look at Habakkuk side eye if you want to. Everybody in this room has had that moment where you pointed at, you based your salvation on how wicked somebody else was and how good you are. And here's what I know. You set the bar way too low when we do that. Remember when Jesus talked about that in Matthew 7? He said, take the, you're looking at the speck in your brother's eye. Take the log out of your eye. And at the end of it, he says, hypocrites. So all of you in this room that base your relationship with the Lord based on how good you are and the fact that your neighbor is not that good, we look at our neighbors and we go, they smoking weed and they drinking French vanilla Ciroc with Coke. I don't know anything about that, but that's what they drinking. And we look at them and we be like, they trifling. I'm not trifling like that. Lord, you should bless me. We do the exact same thing Habakkuk is doing now. He's saying, despite the fact that Judah is in sin, look at the Babylonians. And you do that as well. And all of us in this room, you know, write this next phrase. If you're writing notes, if you're typing notes, please take this next phrase down. If you tweet it or if you post it, just tag me. I just want a little credit, not a lot, just a little bit. Many of us, hear me, I'm serious when I say this. Many of us have become experts at extending grace to ourselves while we deal with others through law. All of us do it. We look at everybody else and we be like, law, law, law. And we look at ourselves and we be like, grace, grace, grace. And we give ourselves so much room, but we give nobody else room to mess up. Habakkuk is like, Babylonians are wicked. They are sinful. Despite the fact he opened up and said, iniquity was in Judah. They are perverting justice. But he's pointing to the greater sins of somebody else. Listen, don't base your salvation like you set the bar way too low. Here's where you should set the bar. 
Don't compare yourself with someone else that's more wicked than you. Compare yourself to Jesus and see how you line up. Because here's what I know. None of us can line up to Jesus. Bible says not even deceit was found in Jesus mouth. Yet we want to look at our neighbor and be like, I'm not that wicked. Point to Jesus and see how you line up. Reality is none of us do. Pointing and comparing yourself to Jesus should breed some type of praise in your heart. You should bow before Jesus because you can't compare. But here's the great thing. He gives you that daggone righteousness and he takes the sin that you were trying to put on somebody else, he takes it and puts it on himself. While Habakkuk is saying, look at their sin, Jesus is saying, give me their sin. I'm taking it and I'm putting it on myself. All of you in this room, every head bowed and every eye closed, because I, I'm convinced that some of us in this room really think that we're more spiritual than everybody else because of how we compare with others. And here's the crazy thing, y'all. Here's the crazy thing. This, I was praying about it this morning, and I realized we don't just do that with the wickedness of our neighbor. We're so self-righteous that we do that even in church. We be like, I came to church every week this month. My neighbor came twice. Bless me, Lord. We be like, I came to small group. They don't ever come to small group. Bless me, Lord. That's what Habakkuk is doing. He's going, forget the sins of Judah deal with the sins of the Babylonians. No, this is what I want this room to do. Deal with your own sins. Take the log out of your eye. Notice in that Matthew 7 when Jesus said take the log out of your eye, that means that the person that is doing the judging actually has greater sin than the person. Why? Because he says take the log out of your eye while they got a speck in their eye. A little piece of sawdust and you got a log in your eye. All of us, if that's you in this room, we need to repent. We need to repent pointing to the sins of our neighbors while not dealing with our Father, I want to pray for everybody in this room. Because even though we read through Habakkuk and we're eavesdropping on this divine conversation, for some reason we disconnect ourselves. We think that we're not that bad and our neighbor is way worse than we are. Help us to do right now for ourselves. Do not just forgive us, Lord, of our sins, but Forgive us in this room of our self-righteousness. Forgive us in this room of thinking we are better than we really are. Forgive us for thinking we're more spiritual than we really are. All of us in this room could pray more. All of us in this room could be more consistent in our devotion. All of us in this room could display some type of discipline and we all lack it in one area or another. Help us to be gracious towards other people and do like Paul says, I beat my flesh and make it without sin so because we're all sinners we all need to get before you help us not to take our sins and sweep them under the rug while we present others in front of you forgive us Lord every argument that Habakkuk made this morning falls short help us in this room not to fall short of your standard what is your standard? perfection how do we get that? Jesus 